You know why we fall? So that we can pick ourselves back up. This is a Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Clifton Harsky. Cliff is the Director of Education for the Pain-Free Performance Certification and has done many certifications throughout his lifetime. He's a trainer and I love his approach to taking kind of an outside step of sports performance, but also taking a non-intimidating step to sports performance, which is something that he mentions. He works with a lot of general population. He calls them baby drafts, which is pretty funny. This is his main population that he works with. And he talks about breaking down the barriers and not trying to just shit on everybody's approach, but trying to grab from every approach possible and grabbing things and seeing where the connecting dots are and seeing kind of what we can use in all the fields rather than putting up the walls that has so many times happened in the sports performance world, putting up these walls and telling people they're stupid and telling people they're dumb and then wondering why we have a population that's not working out, wondering why we have athletes that don't enjoy coming to the weight room. And Cliff is all about trying to eliminate all these barriers. He also dives into his approach to adding variation in workouts. And he talks about being able and being athletic as his two kind of premises to his program. How can we add complexity, but how can we also build that base and foundation for our athletes? One of the really cool things that he mentions is doing less things is not going to be you be able to do more things. And as simple and as basic of a quote as that may sound, just listening to it, look at your programs and trying to check out some of those things and see if you are doing more things or if you're doing less things and trying to perfect those less things to prepare you for more things. And that was one of the cool topics that we covered with coach. And finally, he covers the importance of the foot and the forefoot and training the toes and training the front of the foot rather than just all being heel based. And that goes back to the kind of complexity and not eliminating one aspect, not just doing heel based, but not also just doing forefoot, not being the movement yogi, but not being the strength coach that has no movement in his program, but kind of combining the two pathways, which we talk about a lot on this podcast, took a lot from this podcast, took a ton of notes. So I hope you guys get something out of this podcast. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with the Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF Nutrition and Lifestyle Guidelines, That includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Thank you guys for listening. Marcus, you know what to do. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we've been kind of following each other on Instagram for a little bit. And I I really love your kind of lively approach to training and just kind of the, the field in general and how you kind of take the the scientific route and you, you you have methods that I think are awesome, but then you also take it in a, a kind of a disarming, disarming way to where it's not super like three by 10 scientific. Everything is completely laid out for you in scientific. Can you kind of talk about how you've got to that mindset, why you kind of approach the field, the way you approach the field and the journey that it got to get there? Absolutely. Uh, so I think the, the, the first way that I started down this, uh, avenue, if we want to call it that way would be, why was I training in the first place? And the cliche story, I was an athlete. I played, uh, college basketball and I just wanted to dunk on people harder, right? Like I'm six foot white guy and I can get up pretty well. And I wanted to be able to just dunk more regularly in games on top of people's heads. And so that set up my qualitative marker of what was good training to me. And that was, I felt better on the basketball floor. So it wasn't, what could I do in the weight room? It was, I felt quicker. I could defend better. 
I didn't get back down in the post as easy and everything came back to athleticism, which is a pretty broad uh, term because you have to, you have to go down specific bits for specific sports, but from a general field sport athlete, it kind of means like you're a little more agile, you're a little quicker, you can go a little longer and you're a little stronger. So you got to do a bunch of shit better. So that was my uh, way of always looking at any training. And what I was able to do is I had the best start to the fitness industry that you could possibly have. I was not in the fitness industry. I was managing Trader Joe's for seven years after working there for three years while I was in college. So during that time, I spent a number of six to 12 week trial periods at different types of facilities just to try shit out. So I did six weeks of hot yoga because you can get free memberships for a week at a time to hot yoga. <laughs> and I was like, let's just see what happens. If I do nothing but hot yoga for six weeks, how do I feel on the basketball court? And I felt dehydrated <laughs> because this shit is hot and sweaty. Um, I didn't feel that much more limber. I didn't feel any better. Right. I spent uh, a full six week period uh, at doing just CrossFit. I sucked at basketball because I was beat down the entire time. Uh, I've done body willing blocks. I've done four full weeks of nothing but reformer Pilates. And I've gone to, I only made it two weeks of taking nothing but bar classes because like if I, if I'm going to ultimately work in the field, which was always my goal, even when I was managing, I knew I was going to come back around to fitness. Uh, I mean, I had personal training clients and boot camps running while I was managing, but I knew that if I want to be able to talk to a client or somebody about their expectations the best way to do so is to understand what they've experienced and what they think they're going to get in other types of offerings, because then I can go, yes, you're right about that. But we implement that here. And ultimately, I didn't know this then. I know it now. All of it works. Everything works for a time. And will some will work better for others, uh, for some people, and some will work better for others. But there's elements that work from everything out there. Otherwise, they would have ceased to exist at some point right? Like they Zumba works for some people. It may not be the most effective at a bigger deadlift, certainly, but it, I bet there's a lot of stiff ass male athletes that could do a better job of being athletic if they learn how to move their hips in a Zumba class. So there's elements of every type of thing out there that we could take and put into our own program. And that, you know, would behoove athletes and general population to have a more well-rounded physical capacity. And that's kind of what I, I end up looking at from an athleticism standpoint is you can do more total types of shit. And that that's phenomenal. That, that kind of thought process, one, just being the Guinea pig yourself, because I think that's super powerful. And I think a lot of coaches kind of lose that kind of Guinea pig type mentality when they're in the field or they, they kind of get the, I think I know everything approach, but two, and this is something that I think the field is pretty bad at is stealing or grabbing concepts from other fields no matter how small that concept is, and it, part of it's being that guinea pig, but no matter how the small, small the concept is, you're grabbing it and applying it to your system or your training, whatever it is. Because I feel like so many people in our field get so offended by something. Let's say it's CrossFit. Uh, the strength coach gets so offended by CrossFit instantly that they, they, they cut off everything that CrossFit could offer for them. They, they, they cut it off. They're like, CrossFit's bullshit. CrossFit's bad for you. CrossFit's bad for the athletes. But like you mentioned, like if, if that was true, if every part of that was true, CrossFit would be gone by now. So what does CrossFit have that you can take? Oh, they have a phenomenal community. All right. So maybe we grab that aspect of community. We leave the training, we leave the kipping, but whatever it is, like you leave all the, the bad stuff that you see as bad behind and you grab the good stuff, the community, and then apply that to your system, whatever that system is, whatever that program that you're building out is, and then you apply those concepts. But I think that's something that our field, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego in the field misses out on a ton because we, soon as something's bad, soon as something's different, we cut it off rather than looking at, all right, I could grab that piece and use it here. And it's going to help my athletes, which is our end goal is helping our athletes, helping our clients. Totally. I mean, so there's the thievery part, which I think we should all blatantly steal the shit that's good from each other. Um, but more, more, maybe not, maybe not more, but like equal to that is where do we see common threads between different methods, right? Like if, if there's, four schools from different parts of the world that don't know the other schools exist. And they're saying the same thing. Even if they say it slightly differently, I would latch on to that thing versus the 19 things that they kind of don't agree upon. So like an example would be pelvic to rib positioning. 
right? Like it's a hot topic. Uh, the, the current cool way to talk about this is compression and expansion. And it used to be posterior tilt and anterior tilt. And now we have a term called stack and everybody's kind of saying the same shit, the same, like in different ways and saying, no, it's not fucking compression. It's this. And I'm like, all right, whatever, man, you guys are saying the same thing, potato, potato. Um, it looks like we're all saying maybe it's a good idea to be able to have an ex extended strategy and a flexed strategy depending on what it is that we're doing. That's probably a good idea. Can we agree on that? Great. Let's just do that then. And, you know, whenever we can find other examples, there's a ton of examples, but when we can find uh, common threads between multiple people that hate each other uh, about shit, they shouldn't hate each other about, then that's the real goal. In my and, opinion. Yeah. And the, the conversation, like you said, like as long as like most of the time, there's so many common threads applied there that if they just had the conversation in the first place, you, like you said, like they, they just, they would agree upon it. They, you wouldn't have to sit there and argue over some, I mean, some of the stuff I, I talk about this, I think it was Danny Foley a couple podcasts ago, but some of the stuff you see on Twitter, you're like, Oh my God, what are we even talking about here? One, either they're agreeing to something or they're arguing over something that's so small. It's going to make zero difference. And that's why I, it's why I really love your approach. Just, and I should say your approach, what I see on Instagram as your approach is that that kind of disarming approach, because it's then you don't have to sit there and having those pissing matches. You can sit there and talk about what you value and what you see as good for your clients and athletes rather than this is what I do. I'm not moving on it. Like fight me over it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know where I think a lot of people get lost down that is through the um, you can call it a cult, whatever you want, like plant your flag. It ultimately it's their identity. I am strong first certified. Therefore, this is how I do it. And that's how you should do it. And if you do it differently, you're wrong. And I'm not picking on strong first too much because they give fantastic education. I have a lot of friends in the organization, but they do plant a very black and white. This is how you do things. And what's been interesting is over the last few years, they've had to soften their approach because the entire industry specifically to kettlebells has moved more into an explorative flow, or as I call it, Lord of the dance type training uh, approach. And, you know, it develops different qualities. And so strong first has had to adapt a little bit to stay more relevant because so many other places started stealing kettlebell market share. Um, so anyway, the moral of the story was, you know, they get strong first tattoos. That's how into that organization they are. And there's multiple organizations that are like this, Anytime Fitness, TRX, like whatever it is, you're going to have your people that are super fans. And if you say anything that challenges that system, you're challenging that individual. And then our ego and our, like how we identify ourselves is attacked. And so we get defensive and, you know, it's unfortunate, uh, but it's the way that tribes work and it's the way it's always worked and it's going to keep going that way. And what my, my idea is like, cool, let's just, you know, high five each other and get a sick pump. We, we, we talked about not, not swearing by methods and not, like you said, being able to high five each other and have that conversation. But now if we dive into the kind of rabbit holes and the weeds a little bit more of like, what is that method for you? What is that program currently for you? How are you taking the pieces? Like you, you talked about your, your, your vast background of experimenting with it, being the guinea pig and trying out all these different methods in your current state now, how are you taking all of that knowledge and applying it to what your program is, what with your athletes, what's your goal with that, and what's it kind of look like? Sure. So my uh, original fitness company that I owned and operated was called BA Training, and BA meant be able, and then so the logo it said BA Training, and under Training it said be able, and then dot be athletic. And now, of course, if you happen to be a Sunny and Philly fan, you also know that BA means badass. So the the growth or the progression chart for me was. First, you must be able with your fitness. You have to be able to do basic stuff. And this is what a lot of people get stuck on for endless progressions. And this means bilateral deadlift with an even load, bilateral squat, progressing to a heavier load. And it's the basic shit that's easy to teach. It's easy to quantify progress because you do more weight, you do more reps. It's very linear in a thought process of how do you measure getting fitter. Great. Everyone should start there. Like you have to hit some sort of a baseline of being able before you can progress to be athletic. So in my thought process is we have to get strong enough. I don't know what the hell that means. If, if it's triple body weight deadlift, or if it's double body weight deadlift, very clearly it will be a moving target for different people. 
Some people will continue to drive better total physical uh, capability results from getting even stronger, going from a double body weight deadlift to a triple body weight deadlift. Um, Some people don't seem like they get a whole hell of a lot better. In fact, they might actually have performance detriments from chasing strength for too long, right? a, A max effort strength type of thing. I just wrote a strength definition recently and it said it was something like, uh, being at, cause the, the, the standard definition is the body's ability to produce force. Cool. That doesn't tell us a goddamn thing. Um, the, so mine was the ability to move load external resistance load. So I don't even care if it's dumbbell, kettlebell band cable, like whatever it's load, it's resistance. Be able to do that over a broad set of repetition ranges in different positions with different loading, uh, placements and at different speeds. I think I had a couple more in there, but basically it's saying that strength training is broad. It's not your three RM. It's not your one RM. There's not three lifts that can measure what that is. So first is be able, but I use the big bilateral lifts because it's easy to teach. It's easy to quantify and it sets us up with a great base. But as soon as we go to me, as soon as we kind of hit a plateau, some people call this quitting and I'm like, sure. Once I hit a plateau of easy strength gains, it's time to make the overload more athletic. And to me, all that means is you have to handle more total things. A really easy way to think about it is a bilateral goblet squat. So two feet, your full foot, holding the the kettlebell by the horns. All I do is I move it to my right shoulder. Now I have an offset load. So on the descent, I have to manage lateral flexion, like resisted lateral flexion and resisted rotation. I've made the task more complex. Therefore, it's more athletic to me. Now there's very clearly a, uh, a point of diminishing returns here, just like any type of training. So with be able bilateral, even loads, just get heavier. There's a point of diminishing returns. It stops making you better at everything at a certain point. Same thing, like the functional, we call what I do functional doofus training. That's the, uh, the, the, the joke um, slash serious description of what I do. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a point where you know that being more complex has become silly and probably actually risky. Like if you're one leg on top of a upside down, both two balls, shaking a uh, body blade, uh, blowing into a straw for your diaphragm and doing whatever, you're like, oh, now you went too far. So there's, there's a sweet spot. I don't know what that is either, but you kind of know when you say it, when, when someone's just being an asshole. And so that's be athletic, right? Like be athletic is just more total things. So so the trade-off when you are being more athletic is you generally can't have as much output because the shit is complex. So you can't be as much output. But if we think about like applicability to um, sport, in sport, it's ever-changing. You need to be able to adapt your positions, how you interact with the floor, your torso positions, uh, where your center of balance is, how you're pushing on another athlete, competitor, whatever it happens to be, you, you need to be able to adapt to multiple positions. And if you only ever practice one, it's going to be difficult to be able to have that wide breadth of capacity to adapt quickly. So the more specific, the more different specific overloads that we have, the easier theoretically it would be to then apply uh, the strategies that you developed over a broad range of specific overloads when they present themselves. But this is all this is all based on first, you got to have a freaking baseline. Like, don't skip at least, you know, deadlifting 1.5 body weight. I think that's a bare minimum, right? Like, and, and back squatting or squatting with a, a comfortable bar, yeah, at least your freaking body weight in load. And once you get there, then yeah, like we could probably progress to more athletic stuff. So that, that shapes my strategy. And underneath that would then go, all right. And then we also need to have these, uh, a, a large toolbox to address our clients' needs if they can't do certain things that we normally would do. So normally we would have a standard barbell deadlift or a trap bar deadlift, but maybe that doesn't work for somebody. And this is something we cover pretty extensively with uh, the pain-free performance specialist certification that I, that I uh, lead up now. And that is, you know, it doesn't matter how good the exercise is. It may not be appropriate for certain people. They may have an injury history. They may have a psychological challenge with it. And a deadlift is a good example of this, right? The deadlift is the pinnacle hinge movement. Almost everybody says you got to hinge and cool. Yeah. We absolutely need to pick shit up off the floor day to day in athletics. We need to be able to pick stuff up off from a dead start like this. this, These are not argued, but these, the simple act of 
uh, picking a load up straight vertically can be mentally and psychologically challenging to certain people when they've already hurt themselves doing that. Right? Like they're like, oh, I don't like picking things up off the ground. You're like, cool, you got a deadlift. It'll make your back better. Well, man, they're going in super apprehensive. They go in super apprehensive. Their potential of being successful there is maybe not going to be great. Um, they're going to be guarded. They're going to change how they move. They're not going to be giving it their all. They're going to be pulling back. Like their risk for injury is actually worse because they're so apprehensive because they're scared of that particular thing. And you're just an asshole as a coach if you're shoving it down their throat. Because we can go, well, what does a deadlift do? Ass, hamstrings, adductors, depending on the width of your stance, quads, depending on the amount of knee flexion that you involve in your deadlift, and lower back support, right? I can do all that other shit. I can do all of those things in some sort of other exercise that does not mentally challenge the client, doesn't scare them because they've been injured that way before. And I can build up the tissue resilience. I can pattern the deadlift with lighter weight and revisit it when they're ready for it. And I have better success. So like the be able piece can, can look different for different people. And uh, you just have to have a wide breadth of uh, options available to you as a coach, right? And unfortunately, when people find their tribe early, they go, oh, I learned six exercises this weekend. That's all you ever need to do. Like, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe not. Well, the, the be, to be able, you can almost adapt that to like be able to adapt as a coach, you know, like, and have the, have those options to be able to do that with. And I like, I, there's a couple of things I want to branch off here with the first, you just mentioned just there talking about how, like you get into your tribe and that's, that's one thing that I found. Cause you, you also mentioned earlier in the podcast, how you, you started the fitness industry in the best place, which was outside of the fitness industry. And I think that's so true because when you start in the fitness industry, myself included, it's like those first that first program that you run, like when you're in that time range where anything that you lift is going to lead to phenomenal results, like you could do the dumbest program in the world and you're going to get fucking jacked just because it's your first time looking at a weight, doing stuff. And then you have that bias for the rest of your life of, all right, that program worked for me. Whatever I did there worked for me. That is my tribe because it worked for me. It's like, well, literally anything could have worked for you there. So trying to not stay into that tribe, I 100% agree. But I want to talk, dive into the, when I talk to my football guys, that toolbox example you you mentioned, like I bring that up to them 100% of 100 times because there's, there's so many different ways to go about it, you, you, like you mentioned. And it's not, it's when somebody else looks at your program, maybe, and I want to, like they look at your Instagram and they see some of the different ways that you load. Somebody can look at that and be like, oh, that's all eye candy. It's just eye candy. He's, he's just being creative for being creative. But when you break it down into, and this is how I do it too, is like adding tools to their toolbox, and then powering those tools so that they actually have power to the tools. You can have a million tools in your toolbox, but you have no battery to them. It doesn't do you any good to build the house. And then teaching them how to use the tools as well. Like you have the, that we have a lot of football guys specifically, that's a big part of our clientele or athlete group is like they have, they, man, their batteries are huge. Like they, they have so many output abilities, but they either don't have a bunch of tools so that like they have one, they, they can buy laterally their outputs bilaterally are crazy, but you put them in any suspect position and that battery just completely disappears because they don't have any other options or any other tool to use, but also learning how to use that. Like, all right, now you, you have a bunch, you have a bunch of output possibilities. Now, how does that transition to the field? How do we use that? How do we know when to bend and flow? And there's so many ways that go about it. But like, I think going back to being able to be adaptable as a coach, being able to stick to the goal as a coach, which is creating better athlete, creating pain-free movement, creating long-term movement, I think is very powerful. Totally. I mean, the uh, yeah, just having that adaptability is, is so key. And that's what most people lack because they do less because our tribes say do less. <laughs> you know, stop wasting your time with variation because these are the only things that are the most effective. Cool. They are. They're the most effective. Don't take them out of your program. Once you get good, keep them in one day a week, maybe twice. But you know, maintaining your ability, your major strength level is super goddamn easy. It's really easy to keep a base level of strength. And there's definitely a point of diminishing returns of your one to five RM strength levels. So why not develop every other type or as many other types as you possibly can while maintaining a very good level of that? That's kind of, the, that would be the, the way that I think of it. Um, the other thing is like, as you add in these other abilities, I'll steal this from uh, Katie Bowman. So 
Katie Bowman has a bunch of good books of about fitness and diastasis and other elements of fitness that the meathead com, uh, community probably has never read, but it's really quite good stuff. She has an analogy about um, about variation in your exercise or cross training for athletes, right? Like, or for kids, don't play just baseball all year, like do other stuff. So when we lift nothing but barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, they all kind of have the same shape and they sit in our hand just about the same. And what do we develop over time? We develop a callus and the callus is simply an adaptation of the skin getting thicker, AKA stronger, more robust in that exact spot where we applied pressure. Then we change handles. We do a different exercise. What happens? We get a rip. Where do we get the rip? On the top of the callus or adjacent to the callus? It's adjacent to the callus. We get a rip in the tissue that is right next to where we've developed specific strength. So relatively speaking, we've had an imbalance. We have something that is much stronger if it's done a certain way and something that it doesn't know what it's doing in another way. And because we have this overdeveloped strength in one way, we might screw up our ability to do things other ways. And so I've always loved her uh, analogy from that. And I actually didn't get it from her. I got it from Raf Kelly, who, you know, Raf? Yeah, I was just, that was Raph. literally what I was just about to say. We just had Raf, uh, him on the podcast probably a couple months ago. I was going to bring up, he showed his hand on the podcast and his hand had calluses literally everywhere. He literally everywhere. did that example. It was so, yeah, that's awesome. You brought him up. So no, Roth actually worked with Erwin LaCour at MoveNat before I did. And then um, I came on maybe a year or two later. And so it's like, it's interesting. We, we have a background shared there um, and both have moved on to do other things. But, you know, like very clearly what he talks about is adaptability in nature, parkour, et cetera. I talk about it from more of a, a controlled environment. Um, it's a, it's, I'm not quite as romantic about getting out and doing stuff, even though I used to teach it. Um, it's fun. It's cool, but it's not applicable to most people in their day-to-day life. And so I'm like, how do we make it applicable? Anyway, the, the moral of the story is it's a really cool analogy and all these variations about, can I take the force production capacity uh, that I've built in my bilateral lifts and then kind of lean forward a little bit and still be able to drive output? Or do I fall over? Cause I don't know how to interact with the floor. I don't know how to position myself in a way to be able to drive this output. And that to me is probably pretty goddamn important. And the one thing that you mentioned, it was like, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Cause I think that's where a lot of coaches get turned off on is it's like, all right, you're either going to become the movement. If you start doing that stuff, you're just going to become a movement guru. Or if on the other end, the movement guru doesn't want to become the powerlifting coach. And it's like, it's, I talked about this on last week's podcast in a Q and a actually is like, just trying to Jordan Peterson ish is like trying to balance that chaos and order realm of like, you're just trying to walk down that path of the chaos. Like you don't want too much complexity and too much is random shit thrown at our athletes, but you don't also want to be on that where you only have the callus in one spot because you've done the same thing for 20 years of your entire life and then wonder why you break somewhere else. Totally. Yeah. And it, I mean, look, I, I think that we can probably all, as long as we're not cocky it, or too cocky, I think we're all cocky, but as long as we're not too cocky, we can say, we don't know what that exact amount is. I don't know. Um, you, you talked about the Gota in a past podcast, right? The Gota boys. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say Gota boys. Cause I don't know if they've had a female in their events ever. No, I'm kidding. They, they do. They do some really interesting stuff. They really piss people off. I think they do some very interesting stuff. I think they're wrong in saying that you should never lift weights ever. Uh, but I do have a question. Like at what point do we rewire? Do we train ourselves that our primary way of accomplishing tasks is to drive through our heels, for example, Right? Like I've been, ta- I've been teaching kettlebell swings for a long ass time. And ever since, so I taught about a hundred kettlebell certifications in the last decade. And I'm a big fan of kettlebell swings with light heels or heels, not touching the floor. And that's because of really simple uh, way to put it. Athleticism, you're athletic on your toes. What does every sport coach in the history of sport coaches say? Get on your toes, right? Like if you, or the other alternative, the opposite is this is like the old coach from the fifties. He's like, we got them on their heels, boys. Like if you're on your heels, you're beat for the most part. The only exception is if you happen to pick something up vertically, really, really freaking heavy, slowly. So with kettlebell swings, I, I teach like go through your toes. It doesn't mean don't ever drive through your fucking heels, like drive through your heels. And that's fine. And, but the question that I have is how many reps with the absence of training athletic behavior on the ball and toes of your feet and pivoting, which is very athletic. Like if you have that uh, missing in your program, how long would it take? How many, how many uh, instances of overload driving through your heels before you teach yourself that is how you do most things. I think that is a valid concern, but I have no idea 
how long it would take to rewire if, if, if you want to use that term. Um, but it's intriguing. It's an intriguing conversation for us to have. It's, it's wildly ridiculous to, to be worrying about uh, people that don't ever do anything athletic, um, not being on their toes. Like, dude, the most athletic thing they do every day is take a shit. Like, so they can go ahead and squat and push through the heels all day long. It's not going to be the end of the world. But if they're a field sport athlete, yeah, they probably need to get up on the ball at the feet sometimes. And you, you talked about that rewiring. And that's something that I think is really cool, just as a personal antidote and personal story is I was very much a like a rotational, I went, when I would squat, it would be inside of my foot uh, and my knees would come in just a little bit and it would be like a very snappy type squat. I had no back issues. Uh, my squats, I would, they would have that knee valgus. It would, um, knee valgus and rotation. So um, the rotation on the way up. And then I was taught how bad that was for me, how I needed to, um, screw everything out, drive my knees out as hard as possible that we did the whole, like, uh, band around your knees while you squat and do all these things. And then my squat turned into this like rigid, like brick shit house of a squat. And I was able to squat more in that realm, but it was like a very power lifter based squat, a very like squat. And then everything started tight, tighten up my back starting to tight up everything. I, it was almost like, and then when I jumped, it was super cool. And I've, I've been looking at this too. When I jumped, I had no like internal rotation of my hips. It was, then it, it was all just like, kind of went away. So you talk about that rewiring process, like I had that happen to me, just because somebody saw once in a video that that was bad. And now you rewired to do something else. And you loaded that up a 1000 pounds. And it worked in a squat pattern, but and it worked in quotation, I squatted more weight, but I felt shittier. So now, how is that transitioning to the field? And how are you? How are you working with that rewiring process? How are you balancing that with your athletes? And that's something I think is really cool now is adding in that expiration, adding in, all right, sometimes we're going to load up that squat and we're going to go super heavy and we are going to be very externally rotated. We're going to balance that out with a ton of internal rotation of your hips. And now when I squat there, there is no pain and I'm able to keep the force production that I had before. And, and now I don't move like shit on like a basketball court. Like one of the examples I, I went my senior year, um, I was a football player, nose guard. I went the like a couple of guys were dunking on the track team and these are springy athletes, like these jumpers and they would jump. And I was like, Oh, I can do that. I squat way more than them. And I'd go to jump. I was barely touching like net. I'm like, Oh my God, this is bad. This is so bad. And I've, so I went down the whole process, like teaching myself how to dunk and through that process of adding in some of these things and the journey, you got to see just how much more natural your body kind of rotates in. And it was the first time, it was the first time when I got my my knees to come in with jumping without even realizing I just had it on video. I'm like, Oh my God, that knee valgus is back after like four years of it being gone because I rewired it to be all external rotation. Now the knee valgus, like now I have the option to come back in, which I thought was really cool. A hundred percent. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so funny for that to be thought of as this, the world's worst thing ever. And it can be certainly like if it's not controllable, it's an issue. If it's your default pattern to collapse every time, because there's a difference between a valgus collapse and a valgus movement, right? If, if it's done with eccentric control, great, because that's simply stretching the rubber band of all the tissue that's going to fire by going from internal to external. Like it's hard to create a lot of force if you're already externally roads or like, and I say force, I should say power, right? Like speedy power from already being turned out. Anyway, yeah, it's a, it's nice to have that movement option there. But being able to do more shit when you need to is probably preferable to me than being really goddamn good at one. Unless you're getting paid well, then go for broke. And you, you brought up the being able to do kettlebell stuff on the toes. Is there is that your your main pattern of trying to load up that that forefoot, trying to load up the front of the foot rather than the heel? Or how do you are there other methods that you think the the coaches and listeners of the podcast can take away from trying to get on those toes, trying to use, or is it just athletic movement in general? You're just having them sprint and run naturally load that way. What's kind of the process of getting them on the toes and loading it? So there's a, there's a few different spots that I think that would be well to address. Um, let's take a look at like a, a Cal Dietz, right? Cal Dietz, he's uh, in the last couple of years, I believe that they've really started to throw in heel elevated split squat, heavy ISOs in multiple positions. So at different knee bents and different heel heights. Uh, so that way you're changing the stimuli on not just the strength of the foot that ties in underneath the heel into the Achilles, into the calf, into the gastroc, into the soleus, because the level of knee bend, level of knee forward, all those things change that. So kind of like what we're talking about, like you got to train it in multiple positions. So they just do ice heavy ISOs and some heavy eccentrics in a split stance position, maybe front foot elevated. I love that as a, as an easy way to start. I think 
generally speaking, some direct lower leg work for everybody is probably missed because it's, you know, unless you have a calf raise machine, some people just forget to do it. They take it for granted that you need to do it on the, on the flip side of that is your shin and the muscles that are on the front that help to do things like essentially control how quickly your toes drop, essentially control how much your knee is moving forward over your foot upon landing. Uh, so anterior tib, like actually doing some dedicated anterior tib work probably is a good idea. So those two things, uh, then I would say, uh, David Gray rehab. I, I really, really like, uh, what, how he describes this. So I've always kind of argued that the, one of the things that's not taught well to adult fitness and maybe even athletics, uh, it's taken for granted that in athletics, they're getting the coordination aspect on the field and they are certainly, but it doesn't mean to, to your point, that they know how to tumble. They know how to flip. They know how to do other weird things. And that's a coordinated approach. So I'd like David Gray's stuff where he's got, as an example, the worst exercise I've ever done that's ruined me the most is four feet, your forefoot on a foam roller, heels elevated, hamstring bridge. Just hold it. Fucking brutal. It's it's the worst thing that's ever happened in my calves. Um, and I used to teach barefoot running, and I thought that was the worst thing that happened to my calves. So what he does is he ties in the calf working with the hamstring in multiple positions as a as them working together because that's how they would they would work right uh, to stabilize the knee. And he's had great results with people's knee health as and Achilles health by doing that by tying them in. There's more to it than that, but you know if you married uh, isos like Caldeets talks about in the split squats, uh, direct lower limb training uh, like John Russin talks about this a lot. Like, hey, if your ankles don't move, when's the last time you did a full range of motion loaded calf raise? That's a pretty good way to start. Get the front of the shin. I'll credit Ben Patrick for really talking about that. Like, he's the knees over toes, bro, and uh, he talks a bunch about anterior tib and. Then you got David Gray Rehab with the coordinated approach to posterior uh, entire leg, not just the the lower leg. Um, For me, you asked about what about just jumping, sprinting, jump roping. Yeah, I think that has to ultimately be a piece of it for your athletes. Now, they might get enough of that in their sport practice and getting more of it maybe isn't better. Um, For general population, which is more my specialty, uh, I would say that most of them aren't ready for sprinting, jumping, et cetera, when they come to see you. So I have to spend a, a period of time being able with these more controlled positions before I go, Hey, go run up that hill. Otherwise they might be cruising for some sort of soft tissue injury. Yeah. And one of the things that I kind of tag, cause you, you mentioned all these different methods again, and we kind of have like, maybe have a coach out there stressing out about that. And I'll, I'll, I want to dive into you kind of your weekly structure and what a day looks like for you. But also it's like, Find something that the athlete in that moment really sucks at and you'll find it out quick. Do it until they don't suck at it again. And then let's run through a different variation of that. Like single leg calf raises or just a single leg stand, man. You'll see an athlete fall apart on those because it's the first time they've ever done it. It's a new stimulus. Um, but he's like, all right, they're, they're getting crushed by that. What's, what's going to happen when they get on the field and they get put in that position or they get put in the situation which that's going to happen and they're getting crushed by like a 10-pound dumbbell doing a super slow um, cat single leg calf raise or with the knee bent, or even just those Mendes hamstring isos that you mentioned, like I will have athletes do those for 30 seconds. like, and they'll die, like literally die. And you're like, all right, 30 seconds there, man, we should probably work that number up just a little bit. So there's, there's so many methods, but my, my kind of thought process is just trying to find something that they suck at that they probably shouldn't suck at because they're going to find themselves in that position on the field and then get them better at that position. Yeah. It's a, can I add one thing to that? So with my, I'm going to call my fit clients, people that have been athletic and fit forever. We'll call them athletes. And then we'll call the other ones, the, uh, uh, general pop. That'll be nice. I call them baby giraffes. Cause if you ever watch a baby giraffe walk, that's what it's like. <laughs> and so my athletes, I, I love the approach of what do you not do? Well, that needs to get better with the baby giraffes. I go for, a, for a period of time, uh, we would recommend finding what they do. Well, hammer that because you have free gains, like build their confidence and competence instead of making them feel like losers repetitively, because that's what they're worried about. They already feel like a loser coming in. So let's just pump them up. You're going to get good gains. And there's always some transference to what we do. And uh, at the beginning, you're just start with what they're good at. It's going to be basic stuff. That's going to have good transference. Then after they've got confidence, they like what they're doing. They're more consistent. Then we go, all right. So I know that I was telling you, Austin, that you were really good, but I was lying to you. You actually have a lot of opportunity over here. So we're going to do that now. 
And that's how we, at my old company, Fitwall, that's what we would do is we would run blocks for three weeks in a row. And the first week, people would be stuck or they, they would not be good at it. They would get super sore. Week two, they'd be less sore. And by week three, they were picking up more weight without us having to tell them. So we did the same workout three weeks in a row. You know, different workout every day of the week, different emphasis, different tools, that type of thing. So I had a lot of variation. But by week three, they were doing better without us having to do a whole hell of a lot of specific coaching to edge them in that direction. No, no, that, that that's awesome. And I... I kind of get into the weeds and the rabbit hole with this podcast and we, we, I kind of branch off with my guests a lot. Um, and I want to get better at bringing it down to at the end, some practical stuff that the coach can take away. So we're not so woo woo. I geek out about the woo woo. though. I love that. How, how do you, how do you structure your workouts? Let's say you're working with your fit clients. Um, how do you weekly, like what's the weekly structure? I know it depends per the athlete, but what would like a general structure look like with your weekly client, with a weekly like setup and then in the daily setup, how are you balancing the confidence boosting with the, with the new expiration? How are you balancing force production with something that may be new? Like how, how are you kind of balancing all these things and, and applying it to your program? Cause that's a question I get myself a lot is like, how are you, how are you treading that line of the chaos in order? What, what's kind of your approach there? Sure. I'm, I'm just going to reference what we do at, at pain-free performance is we go, all right, there's six fundamental movement patterns, squat, hinge, lunge. And for lunge, that's uh, all single leg for us. Okay. Just easy. It goes well on the back of a shirt. So squat, hinge, lunge, push, pull, upper body stuff, carry. And for us, carry is how do you carry yourself through space? So this is actually locomotion and, or like postures you hold like half kneeling or uh, a front plank, a side plank. So uh, developmental positions fall under carry. How do you carry yourself in space or hold yourself in space? So I go, these six, we go, these six foundational patterns, they need to be trained twice per week. If you train them less than twice per week, you're not going to improve motor skill acquisition. You're not going to improve strength. You're certainly not going to improve hypertrophy. You might fight like further degeneration uh, of a human, sure. But if you want to actually make any damn progress, it needs to be two. That's, that's our starting point. Every pattern within those six need to be trained twice. Now, after that, we go, okay, how many days a week does Cliff have to train? Because that's going to drive what I can do. If I'm only training twice a week, well, then I'm hitting all six in each session. And if I have 60 minutes, I probably need to do supersets in order to make it effective from a time standpoint to get all six of those patterns in. That's the starting point for everybody. If I have three days, ooh, now I can start to explore. Like maybe, because I need two minimum, maybe one is lower body, second day is upper body, and the third is full body. So now I got all my upper body stuff twice. I got all my lower body stuff twice, but I was able to really go ham on my lower body because it was a full day. If I can go four days, now I can go two lower, two upper. If I got five, great. Now I got two lower, two upper, and a full body ESD day. Um, if I got six, throw a couple extra ESD days in there. So I, I look at programming kind of like how I look at pizza. I don't really care if it's cooked as a square, a circle, cut up in triangles or squares or whatever. Like even a calzone is a type of pizza. It's folded over, right? It's all delicious. It all gets the job done. We all have our preferences. Like I don't like square pizza. It's weird. You got no crust in the middle. What the fuck is that? So my preference is probably full body training, but... I also um, am a fan of the idea of everything cyclic. So I don't, I don't like full body training for the entire year, but for most of our clients that we see twice a week or three times a week, it's the most realistic way to train them because short of seeing us, they're, they're not training. And so I got to manage more of what they're doing from a, a completeness standpoint. So I think full body training with most personal training sessions or semi-private training sessions makes the most amount of sense body splits to upper lower until you're training four days a week. I don't think it makes as much sense um, unless you're juiced up on, on special supplements. So the, that's how I would cut up the week. That's our, that's kind of like our recommendation three or less. It's probably a full body uh, type of split. If it's four and over, it's more than likely going to be able to split up. And those full bodies, um, let's say we fill up a full body split over four days. It might be upper, it might be full body push day where you have an emphasis of squat type movements and upper body push type movements. And then it's a full body pull day where it's just the backside of your body. 
Like there's so many different ways to cut up. I don't think any of them are necessarily wrong. Some are stupid, but they're not necessarily wrong. Right. Um, as long as the results tease out, like I'm good, we're good to go. Um, so after that, right. So you got two times a week per pattern, how many days a week for the training that dictates the split that you want to do with them. And then at the beginning and end of the workout, that's where you're going to put their specialty stuff. And what I mean by specialty stuff is so we, in our certification, we cover this entire warm-up series that warms the person up specific to their needs, specific to that day's big lift, whatever the major focus is of that training session. So if you're back squatting, it's probably back squat. So you should warm up for the back squat. You don't need to warm up for everything that you do that day. Because if you warm up for the back squat and that's first in your program, like, did you really need to warm up for front lunges? Not like you're already doing a back, heavy ass back squat. You're warm enough. Um, and then at the end, that's our accessory work, supplemental work, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we just don't think of accessory work as muscle specific. We think of it as either muscle specific, which is generally tied to an aesthetic desire or a uh, action specific, which is tied to a, oh, you have no scapular control. So let's get some straight arm scapular work at the end of the workout. And that's how we structure a, a week into a daily uh, standpoint. From a longer term standpoint, I uh, I generally like a, uh, I guess you could call it like a conjugate if you want, or uh, daily undulating periodization, like whatever you want to call it. Most exercises are changed every single week but you follow a format. So it goes big squat plus light pump hamstring. That's my superset. Then the next superset is forward lunge plus uh, calf raise of some type. And so each week you're doing a calf raise, but you have a different type of calf raise. Each week you're doing a forward lunge, but one week it's with the ipsilateral load. The next week it's the contralateral load. The next week is the slosh pipe. Like these are the subtle differences that make enough variation worthwhile without completely relearning everything that you're doing. Uh, not only is it good for like improving those specific motor skills with subtle changes. So uh, Pavel talks about this, right? Same, but different. It's a little bit of extrapolation of what he means by same, but different, but that's how I interpret it is I'm still forward lunging. I'm just holding weight over here this time. And it challenges my balance a little bit more, how I interact with the floor, like my, my ability to descend quickly because the sloshing of the pipe moves downward and it has this impulse moment that I have to decelerate and come back out of, right? There's a bunch of cool shit you can do there. Um, so that's how we get the variability week to week while not changing too damn much. Probably my short-term favorite way to do things is whatever your big lift is, I would actually run that linearly for three to six weeks and everything else changes around it. So it's, it's kind of the best of both, best, both worlds. Yeah. Even, yeah coach, just, that's uh that's like our uh, entire insight. You just gave away all of our insider setup right there. That, that's like everything <laughs> that we do right there. That's awesome. Well, so what's cool about this, right? Like to me, I go cool that you just validated our thought process because you came to the same type of setup. And I've seen other facilities come to the same type of setup independently. Yeah, sure. We may have seen like had some of the same schools, but if we're all coming to a similar type of setup, we go, whoa, whoa. You know what one of the biggest things in the industry is right now? Linear approaches of doing the exact same goddamn workout for eight weeks in a row. That seems to be relative, like dying breed, like linear progression outside of the true beginner is kind of a de dead thing at this point, I think. Yeah. And then it's questioning, why is it dying? And if it is dying, maybe we should look into kind of why it's dying and continue to progress. And maybe hopefully in 10 years, the thing that you and I are talking about is dying because hopefully we progressed that much. At that point, it might just be electrocuting ourselves while holding an ISO with a BFR cuff. <laughs> <laughs> yep. One exercise and you get jacked off of it and everything works by then. But yeah, I'm, yeah, the way the way the field's going, hopefully that'd, that'd be that'd be interesting. Uh, let's transition into the rapid fire rounds now that we got through kind of all the, the rabbit holes. And the first one is you mentioned some books on the podcast already, but what are some of your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? That's an interesting one. I, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not the most avid reader of books. And part of that is uh, I was running a company while teaching for three other companies and doing my own thing. And then I had kids, so I had no goddamn time. So I would listen to podcasts because I averaged two and a half hours in the car a day. So I listened to some, um, from reading Todd Hargrove has a couple of books. 
One, uh, his more recent book is called Playing with Movement. And his first book, Todd Hargrove, was uh, Move Better, I want to say. Yeah, it was, uh, no, A Guide to Better Movement. So Todd Hargrove, I think, uh, has some really interesting stuff. Uh, a nerdier, two nerdy ones that I, that I like a lot. I got them right here because I, I reference them every so often. Um, Yoga Biomechanics by Jules Mitchell, which is stretching redefined. So she's a biomechanist that has a yoga background. And so she really gets into the weeds about like how stretching works, but applies it through the lens of through common yoga things. And this is fun because if you go to a yoga place and you can just, they'll tell you that, that you should do something and you go, no, it's this. And here's why. And then they go, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about chakra. Uh, and then I like this one. This one's pretty damn nerdy. It's uh, the athletic skills model, optimizing talent development through movement education. And I mean, basically it says do more stuff, be explorative for kids. Like I just gave the cliff notes and that's not just because my name's cliff. The, um, it's a, it's a really cool scientific breakdown of like why you would want to do these other things. And the, and the interesting thing, one of the interesting things to me is the idea that we actually, part of the reason that we have big brains as humans is that we had to solve a lot of movement problems. And that actually is a big piece of our developmental of bigger brains to solve how to climb that tree and get that thing and use that tool. And for us, this is part of it to me is a, a, of introducing new tasks to figure out is keeping ourselves smarter. I need, I need to get that one. That one's been recommended to me a couple of times now. That one, that one sounds like it's right up my alley. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And next question, uh, who do you think a guest that we should have on the podcast is? Uh, I think uh, Jason C. Brown. Um, Jason C. Brown, uh, I used to work with him uh, for a company called Kettlebell Athletics. And so he's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I call myself old jokingly because I'm about to turn 39, but like in the strength and conditioning world, that's sort of old. Um, Jason Brown was one of the OGs of the Kettlebell community and that OG group spawned outward and formed a number of different kettlebell schools. So he just has a, a longevity in the game of, of teaching for perform better for his own company. Like he just knows a lot of stuff. Oh, good. And the last question of the podcast, we, we, you almost survived the whole thing here and you sound pretty smart through the whole thing. So it's good. <laughs> last question. When all this teaching, all the coaching, all the education stuff is over, what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Um, Man, I think if if it was something along the lines of making fitness more approachable to more people would be a, a good way to put it. It's I think the biggest problem with the tribe mindset is that it's off-putting to people. And, you know, like it's it's not as inclusive as maybe it needs to be. You know, we we have this internal discussion within the fitness community about like well, what assholes everybody is because they don't have the motivation to work out. And it's like, well, what kind of walls are we putting up to keep people away from it because we tell them that the way they do something is stupid instead of going, Oh, that's awesome. I think we could help you out more so by adding this in versus replace what you do. Cause that sucks. And if they liked it, you just told them they suck. So, um, you know, in inclusivity is as lame as that might sound. Um, being able to make it more approachable for people would be great. Well, boom coach. That's awesome. We did it. We subscribed the podcast. Thank you for being on. Oh man. My pleasure. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.